Morning, everyone. Uh, how many of you were here yesterday for chapel? Just, uh, just to get a feel. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you'll know for those of you uh, who were here yesterday, and for those who were not, uh, just a quick recap. I'm uh, fulfilling a rash promise to Paul Barker this week by preaching three sermons from an Old Testament narrative. And yesterday. Uh, we uh, looked at the topic of a mature faith, which is what we hope you're developing, uh, that we're all developing. And uh, there were three tips, I think, in the passage that are helpful for giving us, uh, um, orienting us as we leave college and as we seek to serve God in whatever context he puts us. Uh, So a mature faith looks forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, and we cling to those promises, the promises of God to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. Uh, It looks back to God's shepherding kindness, to moments of revelation, those kind of loves moments in our lives. And I'm hoping there'll be some of those moments for you as uh, you leave college, if that's uh, the group we're thinking about specifically today. And then looks around, a mature faith looks around at surprising acts of grace in the present, the way God reverses social custom and expectation and uh, he confounds the world's strength with his weakness, especially through the cross. Uh, today's uh, passage is um, remarkably relevant and apt for a valedictory service. Uh, I could start with verse uh, 49 and pretend I'm Jacob and say, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. <laughs> yep, assemble and listen. Sons of Ridley, listen to your principal. <laughs> we, we could go that way, but that would be a bit far-fetched, so we won't. But nonetheless, Hebrews 11, as we saw yesterday, uh, verse 21, says that by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on his staff. And in this passage, he's blessing uh, uh, the rest of them. Uh, a big question for Um, you as you're leaving college, if that's you, and for the rest of you who are listening in, is uh, am I prepared? What's the ministry preparation been like here at Ridley? And it's it's a huge question that the faculty debates constantly. And everywhere I go in theological education circles, this is really the question. Should you do one year, three years, four years, Hebrew and Greek? Um, Should you be part-time, full-time, on campus, online, etc.? So there's, uh, it's something we're always thinking about and people are saying, oh, we should be studying this and the stakeholders tell me, oh, you should, should have them do this. And well, my question I don't put to them is, well, what are we going to take out? Because if you put something in, you've got to take something out, don't you? Makes sense. But there's one thing that's not reflected at all in your studies, in this sense, at least, and in your marks, and is really the key to your endurance and effectiveness in ministry for when you leave college. It's not your theology, your Bible knowledge, your ministry skills, your church planting strategies, your self-awareness, your emotional intelligence, all of those things that we hope you'll be gaining along the way through college. The lesson from Genesis 49 is that the key to your endurance and effectiveness in ministry is your character. And we see this in all the blessings that Jacob pronounces on his sons. Uh, They're kind of oracles. And uh, I was going to say in the sermon that uh, Jacob's not being a prophet here. He actually looks back on his sons' lives 
and joins the dots into the future, as we'll see. But then at 6.30am in the morning, in response to yesterday's sermon, Jill Firth, Jill's not here, is she? No, sent me a text, uh, uh, an, an email, as I was revising the sermon, and pointed out that in Psalm 105, Jacob is called a prophet. So there you go. So a slight revision there. Uh, Jacob is a prophet, but really he's uh, getting a lot of it from uh, their uh, previous behaviour. So what is character? Character are those settled habits of of feeling and action. And that's... uh, Is Scott here? Scott will hopefully will agree with that as he teaches Christian ethics. But it's the kind of thing you do automatically. It's the consistent behavior of, and thought and feeling that happens in your life. Now, as we go through the passage, we'll concentrate on the major sections, Reuben, Simeon and Levi, Judah and Joseph. I'm leaving out 13 to 21 and 27, uh, where you've got Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, etc. Um, partly for time and partly uh, because there's, there's just no context for these figures and it's very difficult to say much beyond what it says in front of you. Still, we see five things in the oracles that we'll look at that reinforce this lesson that when it comes to the leadership of God's people, it's character that counts above everything else. We'll also see some beautiful imagery that uh, Jacob uses to to describe uh, his sons and their behaviour in the past. So five things. Firstly, verses 3 and 4, with respect to the example of Reuben, promising among you can disqualify yourselves from the positions of leadership willful sin so willful sin will disqualify you so it's a character issue faculty regularly get requests for references yep and sometimes when i'm typing a reference my fingers get burnt they're so glowing when i'm writing a reference and uh, verse three is this kind of glowing reference have a look Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honour, excelling in power. Imagine if I was writing that uh, reference for you. You're sure to get the job. Yep, you'd probably get my job and I'd be out of a job. (laughs) But there's a kind of but here. He doesn't actually say but, but then he gives a rather uh, disturbing little metaphor turbulent as the waters. Now, metaphor uh, is, uh, uses an image to say something memorably with feeling. And in this case, the thing that it's saying is not pleasant, is it? In context, as we'll see, it's talking about the fact that Reuben is actually quite destructive and unstable, like turbulent waters. Have a look. You will no longer excel. For, why is that? You went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. So it's a great ending to the book of Genesis because it kind of recalls all the saucy bits uh, earlier in the book. So you'll know, of course, in chapter 35 that uh, uh, Reuben slept with Bilhah um, and uh, uh, for that reason, uh, that was uh, Bilhah. Who was Bilhah again? She she was... uh, um, Jacob's concubine. Yeah, thank you. Jacob's concubine. Um, when I said, you know what's gone on, I really meant you. <laughs> <laughs> so we were expecting the line of seed to go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Reuben. But because of this, 
he doesn't get that honour. He doesn't uh, carry on the line of seed as we're expecting. And instead we get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, effectively. So his actions in sleeping with Bilhah mean that the place of the firstborn goes to Joseph and the line of seed goes in a different direction. Genesis 35, 22. While Israel was living in that region, Jacob, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine and Israel heard of it. So, um, the most promising are not necessarily the most effective over the long haul. And you can be completely shipwreck your lives and worse still, bring terrible dishonour to God and the gospel through willful action. Now, this, of course, is a consistent theme, the idea that character is what makes a Christian leader uh, right through the Bible. And uh, what I'd like to do with each of my five points, most of them, is to illustrate from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications for elders in the church, that they actually speak to the same character issues that we find here in Genesis 49. So in this case, you'll be interested to know that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, self-control is meant to be one of the characteristics of a Christian leader. And sexual faithfulness, faithful to your spouse, is in both lists of qualifications as well. Even the most promising can disqualify themselves from positions of leadership through willful sin. Secondly, in 5 to 7, we come to Simeon and Levi, who were described as brothers, and they're treated together because they have a common fault and fate, as we'll see in a moment. And what we learn from them is that unchecked anger can also disqualify you from serving God. Have a look. Uh, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. So there's really harsh words for Simeon and Levi. Their anger and violence means that they'll be scattered among the other tribes. Now, back in chapter 34, this is what uh, Jacob's talking about, uh, where um, one of the Shechemites, Shechem as it turns out, took their sister Dinah and raped her. Yep. So in one sense, you can kind of think, well, there was good cause for anger, wasn't there? Their, their sister had been raped by these other men, taken brutally and defiled. Uh, chapter 34, verse 24. Um, All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Remember the story? So uh, the two men we're talking about, Simeon and Levi, come up with a plan. They say, okay, you can marry our sister, but because we don't want to be associated with unclean pagans, you have to get circumcised. So they get circumcised, which is painful, And three days later, they're still lying around in pain. While all of them are still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, this is reading from chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, attacked the unsuspecting city, killed every male, looted the city, carried off all their women and children, taking um, them as plunder and everything in their houses. So the oracle's pretty apt, isn't it? Even if we might sympathise with their initial response, 
They went too far. And their cruelty and anger went way too far. Now, this is an issue for all of us at different points in our lives. All of us, if you haven't had it yet, it'll happen, have had some injustice done to us. Or have had some injustice done that we're really angry about. And the scriptures address this stuff. Simply put, uh, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Now, we don't have time to go into what that might mean and how it might look. But certainly, as Christians, we look forward to the day of judgment and we leave room for God's wrath. One of the ways in which to deal with our anger is to say, at some point, the world will be put to right. And these things will not go unnoticed. Um, In our case, maybe because we're in a polite, civilised society, um, we hold on to grudges for years. That's the way we deal with our anger. So I think it's significant that um, in a certain epistle in the New Testament, Paul says that uh, love does not keep a record of wrongs. So that's the, the real antidote to anger is love and a trust in the justice of God. So, friends, you've got to let go of anger if it's something that you're hanging on to. And there will be things in our lives that deserve the response of anger, but we're not to sin. Because unchecked anger can also disqualify you from serving God. Now, interestingly, when we go to the pastoral epistles for the qualifications for elders, it says in 1 Timothy 3, not violent, but gentle. Remarkable, isn't it? The same attributes, not violent, but gentle. And in Titus 1, it says, not overbearing, not quick tempered. So, friends, let's not let our anger fester and uh, let's deal with it with the resources that God has given us so generously. Now, if uh, Reuben, Simeon and Levi get disqualified, we're kind of wondering, well, is there anything here to encourage us? Is there someone who gets affirmed? Well, in verses 8 and 9, we run into Judah. And here we learn that God entrusts spiritual leadership to those who have proven themselves trustworthy. See verse 8? Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. So there's the blessing. And then in verse 9, we find out why. Because you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? So Judah's got these heroic deeds that his father Jacob has noticed. And he's realized that this is a guy that I can put my trust in. And being trustworthy is the key to serving in God's kingdom. Because God does entrust to us the message of the gospel and his people. And we're to shepherd them and to proclaim that gospel faithfully. So this is encouraging though, isn't it? Because Judah's not perfect. Uh, If we go back to chapter 38, he had a terrible encounter with Tamar. Um, Another M-rated scene in uh, the book of Genesis that we skipped over with Toby at the dinner table when we read through Genesis. (laughs) And and he, he did some terrible things in chapter 38. And Tamar finally confronts him. And I think from this we learn that he was transformed by that encounter. Then in verses 10 to 12, the rest of the Judah oracle, we get an intriguing prophecy that takes us beyond Judah to Judah's descendants. 
his uh, sons in the future. Uh, And from this oracle, the rest of the Judah oracle, we learn that ultimately only Jesus is guaranteed success in God's service. Have a look. Uh, Verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So the scepter's a, uh, um, a, a symbol of royal authority. So one of Judah's sons will, will end up becoming a king. And his reign will be universal. That's what it says. Over, the obedience of the nations will result from that reign. And it's no accident if Judah is a lion that in Revelation 5 verse 5 it says that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of of Judah. So we get another amazing prophetic oracle here pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes further, verse 11. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It's a kind of say what? moment (laughs) but I I think if you think hard about this and I had to I think what we're looking at here is an exceptional grape harvest a transformation of the environment a kind of reversal of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3 where the ground is cursed here you get a flourishing harvest and again I think this is an early hint of an ideal environment that the later prophets relate to the age to come and the full realization of the kingdom of God when the thorn and sweat of the curse in Genesis chapter 3 is replaced by the fullness of wine and its abundance. And of course, abundant wine is associated with Jesus at the wedding of the, in Cana of Galilee and then in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, a really nerdy point, and on that score, oh, Andrew is here. you like this, Andrew. So... Uh, <coughs> The Targum, remember what the Targum is? So you've got a Hebrew Old Testament and in the synagogues in the first century, they'd do the Hebrew reading and then they'd have an Aramaic paraphrase, a living Bible effectively, um, uh, read out. And this is what the Targum says at this point. It's amazing. Until the Messiah comes, to whom belong the kingdom and who will be obeyed by the nations. So the early Jews realised that this was a messianic prophecy and that ultimately... As I'm underscoring here, it's only Jesus who is guaranteed full success in God's service. Even Judah, however commendable his character, will not rule, but rather his greater son. And that scepter will not depart from Judah, and all of the nations will ultimately be obedient to him. There's a final encouragement then with the oracle for Joseph over the page from verses 22 and following. And here we learn that God will bless the service of those who endure through hardship. Have a look, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall with bitterness arches attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. It's amazing imagery, isn't it? And it's referring, of course, back to the life of Joseph and the many difficulties, uh, not least with his brothers, that he experienced. So notice the association of fruitfulness in verse 22 with hostility and opposition, with attacks 
from one's enemies. This was certainly true of Joseph, so it's an accurate oracle. But as followers of Jesus Christ, it's true of us too. We need to uh, take seriously the expectation that we will face hardship and opposition. The world hated me, Jesus said. It will hate you too. Now, at this stage in my life, I'm not experiencing a lot of hate. And the hardest things for me in Christian service are actually difficulties from other Christians. None of them are here, by the way. Um, But nonetheless, this, this is the pattern of Christian ministry. God blesses those who endure hardship. It's not exactly a selling point that we advertise when we look for students. not something we mention at the open days. Maybe we should. But, but it's still true. And here we see both encouragement and a warning because Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring. That's really a beautiful image of what we want from our ministries, isn't it? But along with that, there'll be the bitterness of archers attacking us. And beyond that, there'll be the protection of God. See verses 24 and 25, which are a wonderful uh, encouragement. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber, not through his own strength and skill, I notice, but because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helped you, Jacob's God, because of the almighty who blesses you. So there's a great reminder again that our effectiveness in ministry will depend on the extent to which we trust the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. And in the pastoral epistles, if Joseph held his bow steady, we are to be disciplined and hold firmly to the trustworthy message that we've been taught. So we're to hold firmly as well. But there's not only the encouragement of provision from God and his shepherding kindness, as we talked about yesterday, the rock of Israel. There's also the promise of blessing. It's unmissable. Uh, The second half of 25 and 26 repeats the word blessing some five times. Blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below. That's a merism, by the way. Blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. So there's this promise of extraordinary, undeserved blessing uh, to Joseph, and the same goes for us. That there is, as Jesus says, if we've given up houses and, uh, and, and other things in this life, we'll be recompensed many times in the life to come. So there are great correspondences between the qualifications for leadership, which we see in these oracles, and the qualifications for leadership we find in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. I'll just read you um, a little bit of each of those. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then in Titus 1, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, but rather hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, 
and disciplined. Now, what's really interesting about the qualifications for leadership in those two texts is there's only one thing there that we guarantee to do for you here at college, and that's to get you to the point where you're able to teach. The rest of it's all about your character. Now, what do we do for you in terms of your character? We haven't completely ignored it. It is there, um, but you have to take it up. So this is really a a word to uh, uh, the non-valedictorians because it's too late for them. (laughs) But for the, the people who are hanging around or who might come back, which is always a possibility, we have a lot of things that we try and do for you. You've got conversations at morning tea. You've got prayer triplets. You've got coffees with Reese. You've got uh, <laughs> learning communities. There are things in place. Um, from first semester next year, there'll be a big college lounge uh, with a decent coffee machine. So there'll be an opportunity to hang out and to interact with each other and to have those conversations, the one another type things, that those things which do produce character forbearing with one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another, loving one another, forgiving one another. So the, uh, the thing we teach you to do most of all here is to watch your doctrine closely. And that's a good thing, and you need to. But do you know what it says in 1 Timothy 4.16? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. So in this room, I I hazard a prediction, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, um, that uh, the people who um, come off the rails in ministry, it will be cause of not watching their lives. It's more likely than not watching your doctrine. Now some of us, and and I'm not uh, downplaying the importance of... uh, of of sound doctrine and it's essential and the two are actually connected but that's another sermon but uh, the thing I want to impress upon you today is that the most important thing for your effectiveness and longevity in ministry will be your character watch your life and doctrine closely persevere in them because if you do you will save both yourself and your hearers 1 Timothy 4.16 would make a good tattoo if that's what you're into. (laughs) So evangelicals are notorious for our close attention to orthodoxy, aren't we? Yep. And uh, all the more now that there's social media out there and uh, you can do it from the comfort of your own home and lounge. But what we should also be just as uh, um, vigilant about is uh, orthopraxy, right behaviour, which should come from and endorse orthodoxy. So we learned several things. Uh, If I can get my pages back in order, a quick review. Uh, We learned that God will bless the service of those who endure hardship, that God entrusts spiritual leadership to those who have proven themselves trustworthy. Only Jesus is guaranteed success in God's service, and perhaps most soberingly, even the most promising can disqualify themselves from positions of leadership through willful sin or unchecked anger. Brothers and sisters, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers.